Hey, before we hop into today's episode, make sure that you're subscribed to Can't Knock the Shuffle and that you've given it a five-star review. It seems like a small ask, but it really helps the show out a lot, and we appreciate it. All right, now on with the episode. Welcome to Can't Knock the Shuffle Season 2. I'm your host, Sean Kantrowitz. If you're anything like me, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume we have this in common, you love finding out how songs are made. The stories, the details, the hidden gems, all of it. Here's the thing. Most artists typically only get asked about a handful of their most popular tracks. Not only do fans like you and I want to hear the stories behind all of the songs, but I long have suspected that the artists themselves are pretty eager to share some of the untold stories too. That's why I created Can't Knock the Shuffle. I take an artist's entire catalog, put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. It's like live liner notes with an algorithm in the driver's seat. In this episode, I'm joined by Sage Francis, a rapper who was independent before claiming indie was cool. A veteran of the underground battle scene in which he won the Scribble Jam MC battle in the year 2000. Sage was early in adopting a tour-heavy business model that found him relentlessly doing shows and hitting smaller markets at the turn of the 21st century. From the jump, Sage has never been afraid to occupy his own unique space in the whole landscape of rap music, incorporating influences from different genres of music, a rotating cast of collaborators, and a writing style that ranges from the fiercely political to the vulnerably personal. He was the first hip-hop artist signed to legendary punk rock label Epitaph, and he would later go on to launch his own Strange Famous Records, where he continues to release his own projects as well as the works of other artists. This episode is a little shorter than the average Can't Knock the Shuffle episode due to some scheduling issues, but it's a great exploration of an artist who's always had something to say. So let's get into it. Sage Francis, how are you? Blessed. Blessed as the world burns. I don't, I'm not even sure what date this episode will air, but I feel somewhat confident based on the past 10 to 12 months that there's going to be some shit that we're either dealing with or just dealt with. So, Oh, yeah. Two, 2021 kicked off in, in uh, rare form. It was, you know, you never know what volcano is going to erupt. So we'll see. We've got your uh, song catalog here and it's all queued up. You have a very prolific career. We were speaking earlier about how there was periods in, in your career where you were really cranking out tons and tons of music. So it's always great to have an artist who has a healthy catalog to sort of draw from. Is your catalog something that you revisit often or or is this going to be like pulling out yearbook uh, photos that you haven't seen in years, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. I, I try to stay on top of what... Um like if I, I stay on top of all my social media. So every time a fan mentions a song or a video, I'm, you know, I interact with it or engage with them. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't think you're going to hit me with anything. I'm not, I haven't heard or, or thought about in a while, but maybe, I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff people have overlooked. There's a lot of sleepers in my catalog um, from the mixtapes. So hmm, we'll see. Song one. First song is from 2005. It's from your A Healthy Distrust album, which was definitely a seminal, you know, sort of career shifting entry into your catalog. From my estimation, this might be a little bit of an outlier in your catalog, but the song is called Ja Didn't Kill Johnny. Oh, John. <laughs> huh. Holla. 
touch me as a kid. I want you to know. I'm still feeling your edge, boy. Uh huh. Bring it. Life is easy. God didn't kill Johnny. He had a date with death. It was a slow train coming, and we all got a train to catch. But Lord, take your filthy claws. Johnny Cash homage. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's interesting about this popping up first is that last year I was celebrating the 15-year anniversary of a healthy distrust, and I did a a full breakdown of every single song and try to give background info on each song. And uh, John Didn't Kill Johnny was the very last entry, and I didn't do it. (laughs) I went through every song, and then I got to John Didn't Kill Johnny. And that's right around when my son was being born. And then the just madness of dealing with a new member of the household and the holidays. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get to that song. So, hey, now we get to get to it. That song, I thought would be interesting to end... Um, my album on Epitaph, which is a punk label. And I was the first hip hop artist signed to that punk label and to end it with a tribute to a country singer. <laughs> and, the, you know, it just kind of was, a, I think, a whimsical thing uh, I was doing there, but also, yeah, paying homage to Johnny Cash. And uh, I wouldn't say I was a lifelong fan of his, but I think in recent times back then I had started really appreciating the work that he did when he died again I wasn't a huge fan it wasn't like something was ripped from my life but I I felt it it was it was one of those things where I had just gotten familiar with his material and what he had done and I wrote that song almost immediately it kind of just came out of me I wanted to do a sing-songy type track which I've never done before and uh the I, I believe the people playing that music were my roommates in Providence are Nathan was the kid who played the guitar and uh, harmonica. He was a, he was a big Johnny Cash fan. We were all big Bob Dylan fans and, and they went on my tour in 2004 or Nathan did. Um, and that turned into a debacle as well, but um, with him, him, him and his personal life, but whatever this, this all came together. And I think we, um, we patched up some problems just by collaborating on this track and became friends again. It was a kind of a, a risky move. I wasn't sure if people were going to take it as a joke, if they were going to take it too seriously, but it wasn't a single or anything. It just was kind of an outro to the album. So that gave me a little bit of leverage or leeway to play around. And um, it went on to be one of the most popular live songs that I do in my set where because people don't often get to sing along, sing along. You know, it's rap. When you rap at shows, of course, there are lines that people get to punch. But that was a song people actually got to sing. And there was a great call response section to the end of the song that would get super live, especially when I was performing it with um, Soliloquists of Sound when we did those two tours, national tours in 2005. And to build a crescendo with Da Vinci on the MPCs, and scream, holler at your boy, life is easy. There was other things about that song that was something else. Oh, yeah, I found myself a couple times over the years getting in some shit with feminists who were like, why is it holler at your boy and not holler at your girl? Oh, okay. (laughs) 
And, and what, what's the response? I mean, if you ran into this a few times, what I've, the, had, uh, I've tried a couple different approaches in my response. Uh, one to be very sincere and be like, well, you know, it's, it's about a guy and it's holler at your boy. And I'm actually talking about me. I'm, I'm your boy. So holler at your boy. And then I was like, I'm kind of just, just kind of riffing on the Jay-Z quote, holler at your boy, you know, but turning it into a, a country Western a twist. I don't know. There was, there was one time I got really upset just because this person was trying to like, it was a gotcha moment. Like, Hey, you're not doing enough. And what's this all about? I'm, you know, I'm sure I could have dealt with that in a more sensitive manner, but when I'm, high on adrenaline from a live performance and I'm sweating my ass off. I don't want to get into one of those kind of discussions that are just so ridiculous that it it, it doesn't require me to be sensitive, <laughs> but I do my best. Cause I know people like will hold those kind of interactions. It's magnified for them. You know, they had this one thing they want to address with me. And, and if I don't be careful and they can turn into one of those nightmare stories they share with the whole world for the rest of their life. So yeah, I guess those are my 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 main s- stories about Ja didn't kill Johnny, but it was really totally written on a whim. Though even the whole Ja thing, you know, it's the Ja Johnny <laughs> and referencing um, how he touched me as a child, you know, in reference to a priest, Father John. Right. And so it's kind of all over the place. Whatever you get out of that song, I think at the end it's supposed to just be a pick me up type track. So I think uh, I think it succeeded in that, in all of its whimsy. This being on the Healthy Distrust album, which was the first uh, release that you did on Epitaph, and uh, you being the first hip-hop artist on an uh, established punk rock label, what was that experience like for you? This was all in the business realm. <clears throat> it, wasn't more, it wasn't as much of a scene thing. It, was much, it wasn't really even a music thing. What they were great about was they trusted my process. They didn't try to get in my ear. They didn't try to influence what kind of music I was making. They said, they literally said, Hey, we love the kind of music you make. Um, we know that you have a, a, a big following. So we trust that whatever uh, you put together, you're going to have an audience for it and we'll be able to um, get the material to that audience and beyond. And they did, they did expose me to more people outside of the hip hop circle uh, especially the indie hip hop circle in the late nineties, early two thousands that we had garnered. So including feminists who maybe weren't familiar with Jay-Z references. Yeah. And maybe, um, Oh, these people who, cause two, this came out in 2005 and the music industry had changed so drastically, mostly because of file sharing programs and Napster and people were exposed to a lot more music at this time. So there weren't as many purists. When I was coming up, you didn't have access to a lot of music. So if you had your chosen genre, you stuck to it because you couldn't chance buying a record from another genre that sucked. You know, if you liked rap, you you got all rap records. If you liked heavy metal, you got all heavy metal records. Um, and it wasn't like that anymore, but I did, I did receive a, some, some hateful backlash from people who were like, oh, fuck this hip hop shit. You know, I just want to hear punk rock. And, <laughs> but that, that they were far and few in between. I would say that first record, um, they did an incredible job with, I did have the momentum behind me. So they, they benefited from that, but I also benefited from their, uh, infrastructure <clears throat> and outreach, which I lacked. Song two. So we're skipping now all the way up to 2014 
It's from your Copper Gone album, and the song is called Grace. Grace is a little girl who wouldn't wash her face. Grace is a virtue. Virtue is a mean between two extremes, one of excess, one of deficiencies. Patience is a virtue. Virtue is a dirty stain. Cleanliness is next to godliness and isn't worth the pain. Grace is a virtue. Virtue of the pageant. And this is not a love ballad. You suggested lithium to get me better again. That is unless if we um get together again. But that ain't gonna happen never again. Send my well wishes to your nutritionist, your dietitian. Sometimes we hit singles. I don't want to ever make it seem like, you know, we're not going to necessarily touch on songs that get videos and are, are, are put out there. You've been kind of quiet since this era, and can you talk about that before we kind of get into the song itself? What has changed since this era to now? Uh, well, the Copper Gone album was my uh, last solo, studio solo release. It was the first time I, did, I put out a record on my own outside of Epitaph uh, since A Healthy Distrust. It was a very high-pressure situation because we... We, my label, Strange Famous Records, we had to prove ourselves that we could put out a record and be as popular or if not more popular than what Epitaph was doing, even though we had less outreach and we had less staff. And thankfully, we did. We did do better than they did with my previous two records, which was Human, the Death Dance and Life. That was a huge win. I was very proud of that. But this this album came out uh, after a few years of me kind of being a shut-in and um, really living a solitary life and uh, a lot of depression, dealing with a lot of, I don't know, maybe it was midlife crisis stuff. I'm not, I, I'm not really sure. I, I kind of just never wanted to leave the house or do anything. The only time I left, I feel like, was to do shows and make money and then come back home and pay the bills and take care of my cats. Mm. So um, since then, what I did after that was I started working on a project called uh, Epic Beard Men with B. Dolan. The next few years of my music life was dedicated to those songs and those shows. That's why a solo Fra Sage Francis album didn't follow Copper Gone, even though I had been working on one and I still am. It took a back seat after marriage and kids and, and the pandemic. It just everything was like one, two, three punch. And I had to move from my, my childhood home, which I purchased as an adult and I had been living in and that's where my studio was that's where I had done a bulk of my recordings and now I'm in a, a house that I have not really figured out my recording setup yet so it, it just put everything to a halt I guess that's the the brief overview of what my music career has been doing or why it's kind of been quiet on the solo tip it's funny the grace comes up because I pretty I'm pretty sure the same person that I I had a um a fiery interaction with, and it was in France, actually. There was this, this woman who was mentioning the songs that bugged her, and Grace was another one, because <clears throat> Grace was a little girl who wouldn't wash her face. You know, so she took that as... I think she was filtering all hip-hop songs that mention women as being um, about all women. <laughs> you know, and I, I did my best to explain, hey, you know what? I've been in a couple of relationships uh, where the other person... You know, this is my take on the other person and, and my reaction to things that they did or said to me. If I was dating a man, would it sound like I'm talking about all men or is it just Greg? This one's about Grace. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't really a person named Grace, but the song does com comprise of literal reactions to things that were said to me or um, written about me. And 
how I dealt with that was, you know, writing the lyrics to that song. And some of some of the lyrics to that song come from 10 years prior that are sprinkled in throughout. <clears throat> a lot of my studio albums, uh, the songs will have lyrics that I've been holding on to for decades, you know, at least a decade sometimes. And that was a beat. I think the lyrics and the way I put that song together were driven by the beat, which was supplied to me by Alexander Brown, who I recently just started working with again. That's the only song I ever did with him. And uh, we started working a lot. We put out a record of his on uh, Strange Famous for free. He does it. He has a beat album. Um, he's working on a lot of other material with me and other artists of ours. So that's a, that's a cool link right there. He's a Baltimore cat, but he's, he's in LA now. He goes back and forth, but he's a, yeah, I think. He, I, I actually know Alexander Brown. I, I was oh, dude, wow. Wonderful. He's a, such a cool cat. Yeah. I met him, uh, when I moved out to LA, uh, I think he might be back in Baltimore now, but, but yeah, he's, I've, I actually went on tour with him as well. Uh, in, in a, in another life we, we were, we were on a, on a hip hop tour, uh, in like 2014 or 15. Yeah. He's such a hard worker and he just keeps pump, pumping out material, hitting me with a lot of stuff. And, um, he's doing his artwork and video stuff. And, and then I'm like, Hey, I, I mean, I know he's working a couple jobs and he's take you know, he takes care of family. He's always pushing himself and it gets, I get a little scared for people like that because you got to take a little bit time, a little bit of time to step back and evaluate everything that you're doing and, and make sure you're not underserving your artwork by, not giving it all the attention that it could use. Cause I put them in a group of people that I think are so talented that they lose track of what, what needs more attention and what doesn't. It's just everything to them is just, maybe it's, it's just so easy to come out. Like it's so easy how it comes out of them that they lose track of how they're supposed to cater to certain uh, material. And that's what I hope to work on with him. And I also know that he's just so bogged down by real life issues that he wants the distraction of, of music and art. And that's, that's saving him. So, you know, more power to him for that. Absolutely. We all could benefit from distractions right now from all the real life uh, things that we're facing. When it comes to a song like Grace that does draw from such personal experience and then as the years go by and you are performing this song and whether or not you're being accosted afterwards by, you know, angry <laughs> fans about it, how does your relationship to the subject matter change? Are you at a point where if you were performing this song, do you feel like emotionally detached from the feelings that inspired you to write this? Or is it sort of when you were to perform the song, is it revisiting and sort of reoccupying that space? There are songs that are like that, but not this one. This one, I, I feel quite disconnected from the source material. It's more of um, a general aggressive approach to like, why do you think I shouldn't feel what I feel? Like, don't tell me how I'm supposed to feel about things. And the people that I'm addressing in the song, there's at least two. One of them I'm, I'm good friends with and everything is, you know, we've reached an amends and I'm, I'm comfortable in our relationship. The other I never talked to and they're on their own mission and talking their own shit. So it's almost like it was a weird type of battle. Like when in the olden days, poets would write shit about each other. And I think it's a competitive thing more than it is uh it's not these i wouldn't i wouldn't say grace is one of those songs where i'm spilling my guts out i think i there are some lines i can 
directly relate to some difficult situation I had faced, but it's not it's not visceral. And there was there was a video for this song too, which in its own way disconnects me from the song because then I attach a lot of the visuals to what the director put together for his his version. <laughs> so now so now I get to kind of visualize the video when I'm doing the song. Throw people off the scent and everybody gets their own grace. Exactly. So. Yeah. Song three. Back now to 2004. This is a remix single. And again, shout out to the random synchronicity of uh, the way this sometimes works. This is the Damage remix from the Nonprofits album, Hope. And it is Doomage, produced by the recently deceased MF Doom, featuring Brother Ali and Slug. Never intended on making records that seem too slick Peeps move quick from Jeep music to Jeep unit Weak bullshit pulls chicks but Joe beats Flosses every day And he ain't talking about my gold teeth My whole motif is no sleep and seeking soulmates Getting cold feet if my queen don't awake The feeble bones break, spines curve Now I'm serious People don't take time to learn outside the pyramid What the deal is? I'm unsure but so sincere Get your hair done. That ain't a perm, yo That's a temporary MF Doom, man. Yeah, I'm so glad I had opportunity to work with him. I'm frustrated we didn't do more together, especially with that song because we had him, we had his ear for it, we had his time and energy, and he doesn't even rap on the track. He just produced it, and I wasn't the one working out the specifics or the deal with him. The person who was in charge, I think, at Lex Records, decided, you know, he could either get a beat from mf doom or get a verse from mf doom for us to use and he got the beat and i was i remember being very angry <laughs> but still grateful to have be, to be able to work with i just love his i love his vocals i love his lyrics i love you know the doom voice so that's frustrating you know of course he has a signature style in production so he is on that song and it does sound like a doom beat so that's you know great but i still i don't know what i uh, I don't even have words for it. Anyway, <laughs> rest in peace, the legend, Doom, all caps. When that came to us, I was like, oh, we got a Doom beat. Or we're like, okay, do a remix for Damage, call it Doomage. And um, so then I think I let uh, Brother Ali and Slug know that we had a Doom beat and asked them if they wanted to do a, a Damage remix. They came through swiftly. Like, it was incredible how fast they came through with their verses. Brother Ali was... <laughs> oh, this, this is funny talking about it now because uh, <laughs> I can remember that they both did their verses saying, oh, this, we're going to do a, a song with Sage Francis. Let's talk on some personal matters. And then when it gets to my verse, I'm just talking shit. <laughs> you know, like they're spilling some like actually like real life stuff in their verses. And then I'm just on some hyper battle rap punchline shit. And I remember their reaction to that. Like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> you tricked us. <laughs> it's just funny that, because they were like, oh, you know, Sage Rants, but it was a nonprofit song and all the nonprofits material I had designated to punchline rap and, you know, more aggressive or funny or ridiculous material. But I loved their verses. Like, they kicked ass. So it all, to me, it all made sense, but it just wasn't what they were expecting from me. That's, uh, that's Brother Ali's child who intros the song. He says, bust a move, sucker. And I remember the outro too. People were a little like not cool with me just saying stuff like cocks and cunts together at last. But again, 
I didn't want this to be a serious, like a song I was taken too seriously or that we were taking ourselves too seriously. And I would often say dumb shit like that. So um, if I could redo it, I probably would take that part out, but that, that's why I'm not, I'm in no position to revisit old material and try to do sequels. You know, I'm a different man. I'm a, di- I live a different life. I have different values. I have different uh, viewpoints on everything. So I'm glad I lived that life and I did. And I documented it. It feels like, many lifetimes ago but it's fun to go back and hear it and remember all the odd things that just were happening especially during that time when it was the wild west of the internet the wild west of indie hip-hop coming to fruition in the commercial world and companies coming in trying to poach trying to co-opt kind of yeah co-opt and do what they eventually did succeed in doing but it took a long time and we we, we stood our ground fairly well. What is your vantage point? You know, on, on the last season of, of this podcast, I had Slug on the show. I had uh, Blueprint on the show. Uh, I had Merce on the show. I'm just fascinated, particularly because this was an era where I was, you know, college-ish. It, it's a special time to me. And I, and I know for the people that were participants in it, they it was obviously pivotal and special time perhaps in a different way to them you put it perfectly it was like the wild west of both the internet and uh indie rap i'm just always curious did it feel like you were on the precipice of something at the time or is that something that really can only exist in hindsight when you look back like oh i guess we were like building a movement or we were uh, yeah i would say it felt like we were in the middle of it we were in the thick of it I, i think i could sense that but I was sensing that in the late nineties, I almost, I remember feeling I was, I was scared that I would miss the boat if I didn't get out a 12 inch vinyl before the year 2000. And with how brand new things were, we had no idea the heights to which our music and business could be taken. So it was, it was just uncharted territory. It was a lot of confusion. It was a lot of excitement and energy, you know, scribble jam would happen every year and it felt like that would be something that happened forever. So all these things, like little things, I wouldn't say a little thing. It was a big thing at the time, but every element, everything that happened, we felt like uh, maybe we could not predict the changes that were about to happen. So we were living in that moment thinking, uh, I think a lot of us were thinking it just, we could grow it, but it wasn't going to change much. Uh, people would have to prove themselves, come up through the ranks the way, the same ways that we did in order to gain their own following and support. And it was a time where someone without a manager or someone without corporate backing could sudden, or even a publicist find themselves in, in magazines. Magazines still mattered at the time. Even if they didn't have distribution, if they cared enough about their art and they were serious enough about their music, they would record it and, and make it available to the public. And Nap, again, like Napster and LimeWire and all the torrents that people were like able to steal music, <laughs> where they were able to steal music and share it. We decried it to a point, but it also was very helpful because if we didn't have distribution, it, all that meant was that people all over the world could access our music. That meant we could tour wherever we wanted. And there wasn't much of a touring circuit in hip hop before we did it in the late 90s and early 2000s. There was, you know, we kind of followed the path of punk rock and hardcore. Of course, there was arena tours and stuff for Run DMC and Public Enemy and, and things like that, but not for lower level or underground artists who were coming up through the ranks and driving to bumfuck nowhere to play for 10 people at a bar. 
And um, we, we did that tirelessly until we grew our fan base in each weirdo territory of the country, but also in the major cities and proving ourselves throughout and being tested throughout. Since that had been happening for a long time in music, I don't think we saw that as, as uh, uh, anything changing in it, but it did change drastically. It did change in a way where I feel so sad and sorry for new artists who are super talented, but just are, they look at the wall that they have to get over in order to get any kind of notice or recognition from people outside of their, their immediate sphere. And uh, how do you access that? How do you break through those algorithms? How, how do you overcome the throttling? It's, uh, man, I don't, I don't know. Cause I knew how to do it inch by inch. I knew how to win battle by battle, but not the way it is now. Not how, not how weird and, um, controlled it is it's less malleable i guess there were probably like a lot of different ways that you could get in the door or there wasn't even really like a full door built and now there it is very homogenized and it's a system uh, it's yeah it's it sucks <laughs> that's tough to explain even as a record label owner owner it's it's bad that i can't give at least a few great pointers all i can ever tell people is just be as on top of your art and your craft as possible, take as many opportunities as are presented to you. Just make sure you're not uh, selling yourself short in any type of dealings that you make or, or the company that you keep. Make sure you're always in good company. You trust those that you work with. And as long as you're talented, you will find an audience for it. But it is tougher and tougher. So I see the struggle and uh, Sorry, I'm sorry to everybody. <laughs> sorry, right up toward right up after 2006, 2005, 2006, 2007, people stopped really buying albums and it got worse and worse and harder and harder and gas prices went up and be, you know, now touring is like everything is based on Spotify stream numbers and you know who will be booked where and who's going to get what type of media attention, like who's really, who, what, there's no blogs out there anymore that matter. Hardly websites. Some, somehow Pitchfork is still kicking around, but it's almost like the lone defunct, it's not defunct, but it's the fucking Rolling Stone of the internet. It's, it's like, I'm not checking for Rolling Stone. And they've never proven themselves in recent years as being any kind of, I don't know, spotlight of great information on music. Particularly in the indie hip-hop space. I mean, they sort of have had a very contentious relationship with that whole subgenre. And we talked about that uh, when I had Blueprint on the show, how I don't think he singled them out specifically, but it was sort of like there was this sort of sea change where they were praising all these artists and then it became very in vogue to just shit on them. Yeah, yeah. It, that's exactly what happened. But they're they're also they're not a sole entity. They're not one like one person. It's a conglomerate and people who probably come in and out of uh, their company. And I don't know who any of these cats are. You know, like oh, who the fuck cares what they say? Right. <laughs> <laughs> they say. I mean, when they were reviewing my stuff, they don't review it anymore. They won't touch it. But I I had some very highly rated albums on on their website uh, in the earlier days, and then they just straight up didn't want to cover our type of music anymore. And when they did, it wasn't by someone who knew much about the genre whatsoever. So I always keep that in mind when I'm looking at reviews for anything, not just music, but it's like, what the fuck, what kind of context am I supposed to take this person's words in? I have one question, uh, one more question about this era here that I've wondered about. When you, and you're not the first to say that 
the model of touring was sort of based on punk rock bands and, and hardcore bands. How did that observation actually happen? Were there moments where you or, or whoever was putting you onto game was like, yo, you see how such and such band does it? That's what we could be doing, but for, but for the hip hop that we make. Like how, how organic or how did that observation and sort of business model, as it were, really come to be a formula? Um, I would say it was just the circumstance. Me in particular, I was attending punk rock and hardcore shows in the late 90s in, on the East Coast or in the Rhode Island and Boston area. They were very, a lot of the hip hop shows were getting shut down. They wouldn't allow rap in a lot of clubs because there was violence issues as if there wasn't violence at all the other shows. It's such bullshit. Right. But so I put, a, I put together a band, which was a hip hop band. Cause I was rapping and they were playing the beats, you know? Um, but since we were a band, we could pass ourselves off as a hardcore or any type of band and get booked in clubs that normally wouldn't have hip hop. And then, so we were playing a lot of the same clubs, hardcore bands would play. And I was tapped into that circuit through my friends in college. So I sort of saw the template and I gave up on the idea that rap is supposed to be more like successful looking, you know, like, like, throw away all notions of high production value and deal with whatever type of sound system you have. You're carrying your box of merch, like, you know, out, out of the van yourself, setting it up at the table, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You like give, give up on the idea of looking like a rock star uh, or like that you have any type of success. Like it didn't matter to me if people thought I was poor or not. Like the way I dressed didn't matter. We, that wasn't the type of fan base that we were growing and they didn't care either. It was like, it was very much about lyrics and other things such as that, but the craft. And it was, again, it was so brand new. People knew they were part of something, I think experiencing something that didn't exist before in a way that we were presenting it. And so they got involved and that's how you build scenes. So when these scenes were getting built, at least we could then return to these, these territories that now there is 50 people instead of 20 um, come back again, there's 200, you know, and then there are promoters who were more popular in the area. Who's like, Oh, all right, well now we can get you into the midsize venue, you know, a year or two down the line. So if we just continue to hit up all these spots, make sure we stay inside the minds and memories of the fans that we made there, make sure our shows were good enough and special enough that they want to come back and experience it again and show their friends. That was, that was the whole energy, you know? So I guess back then also atmosphere and I was touring with atmosphere and I was touring with um, Anticon and we were all using the same booking agency called Cork. Yeah. And Cork agency mostly was just doing punk and indie rock so th this was their first foray into booking hip hop and they were going through their same channels. So we were hitting up the same spots that their other bands were doing. So um, that, I think that was important at the time they ended up cork agency ended up turning into um, agency group mm. or maybe they turned into someone else first. Anyway, they got eaten up by bigger companies. So now it's, it's really not like that anymore. It's, it's, it got very frustrating working with them. And I started booking my own shows again. <laughs> I like I literally tore, I booked the Copper Gone tour. I think a lot of the Epic Beardman stuff. And I just, it just was easier. And I was making more money that way rather than giving them a cut of the money. But the 
the ethos there and the, the DIY attitude that we all had, it's, it's, it's always been present in what we do at Strange Famous. And I feel like people with enough tenacity and elbow grease can make good things happen for themselves, but there's just so many things to keep your eye on. And there's so many ways to lose track and you get, you know, I have not paid attention to my Spotify numbers, but like people continually are like, yeah, well, you got to get on this guy's playlist. And maybe if you pay that person or this publicist, they can get you hooked up with this guy's playlist. You know, like it drives me crazy. I'm not, not living that life. I will not. Um, I don't know what it's going to take for me to, to bow down to this new system of who I need to coddle or pay right. in, in order just to get recognition. I feel like I've earned already. It's tough to get shows. There's way more bands, there's way more rappers. And now the venues are all, all shutting down. So who knows what it's going to be like once uh, the pandemic gets cleared up, if it ever clears up. From... 2005 from your still sickly business compilation and the song is called whoremonger with some non-profit shop base home sage is known to pull your card kids so chill i mess up hands like bobbers with no skill my only knowledge is the holy father so thrilled that you don't know still what god is making martyrs out of molehills now if your soul is fulfilled hold your deals and realize you're never satisfied till after you die from overkill i'm from placeboville but we know the drill Seen it so ill, but I wait for the nurse to leave so I can throw the pill. I am not sick, demented or listed as twisted. Bitch, what's up with this kid? Some insisted that I'm interested in running from the facts, whispered in a mating call. They get a busy having such a large catalog, you did have a lot of mixtapes and you have had a lot of you know compilations and things like that. What was the impetus, sort of, for you to collect odds and ends and, and, and put them out? together and including some I, I know that some of these mixtapes and compilations are no longer in print well that song was the second 12 inch we had released under the nonprofits moniker that was in 2000 most people didn't have turntables that's why i was putting together mixtapes so i would put the songs that were on 12 inches onto the mixtapes and radio performances and whatever straggling studio recordings that didn't end up on for an official album they would go on the mixtape it was a real hodgepodge of material uh, so it was the tapes it gave us something to sell at shows and that helped fund my career and my label just being able to have something to sell and people being so um, willing to support us financially especially if they came to a show and they're like you know, get, you get the impulse buys. They're, they're so thrilled by what they experience. Like, ah, how can I support you? You know, so it was really important for me to have something to sell. That was the impetus for putting out the mixtapes. Then those became, I would say, not as important. Like people weren't buying tapes anymore and the CDs. And like then people wanted everything to be on to iTunes. Eventually it became what was streaming. And now I got to consider all the stuff that I'd put out. Some of it is not available on streaming services because what I could get away with on a mixtape, I cannot get away with on a streaming service that is overruled <laughs> by the law. When you say that, you mean like sample clearances or instrumentals? Yeah. Or, no, yeah. I mean, there was some blatant, I just straight up rapped over other people's songs. <laughs> um, and that was just, some of it was because I was on a radio station and I would freestyle over a beat or I just, you know, for the heck of it, just for the fun of it, grab some some song and uh, rap over it, you know, in a way that I thought it was funny or different for a rap to appear over that type of music. So as wild and free as I could be back in the mixtape days, it's it's just not feasible for 
what people are able to experience on their streaming services. That sucks, but it is what it is. So what I'm thinking is I need to um, catalog everything that I've ever put out, get the best version of it possible because there's some crummy audio, but there's better audio if I know where to find it. And um, maybe put it all on a, I, I don't know, I'll put it all on a thumb drive and or a, also make things available through a digital packet. <laughs> we'll <laughs> see. But I am in the process of trying to track down every single uh, song that I did and put it in some type of order for the fans who miss the old stuff and can't find it anymore, but also for new fans who are like unaware that there's a wealth of material out there that um, they just can't access. When you look back at some of those songs from that era versus maybe, you know, we were talking about a song like Grace or, or songs, you know, later in your career, were you approaching writing just from a completely different place? Like a lot of rappers earlier stuff is more rapidy rap stuff. So would you, would you sort of say that was similar to you that you, your headspace in terms of writing and constructing songs was just in a different headspace altogether? Yeah. Different approach, especially for the, the horror song that was purposely immature. You know, I, I, I was going at it, the persona, the person rapping the song is a is immature and slightly psycho. And in those days of rap and those just dumb punchline battle stuff, not dumb, some of it was dumb, but it, it wasn't my voice, but I was participating in what was popular for the underground scene at the time. And I, I liked to show and prove, I like to show that I could do it better than a lot of the other rappers who were doing the same thing. And um, still, as a relative unknown within the indie hip-hop world, trying to make a name for myself, I, I didn't want to go totally left field and turn off boom-bap hip-hop fans, because that was those are my roots. Right. Um, but it, I, I think I had to establish myself a little bit before I could, you know, as, as someone who understands the foundations before breaking the rules and showing a more unique voice, which I eventually did a couple of years later with the uh, personal journals and some of the mixtapes material like makeshift Patriot, where, where it was a more serious approach to the art form. But I didn't, I never wanted to totally abandon the silly side or the immature side. It just becomes more and more difficult with age for that to come off as um, funny. When <laughs> right. people are like, Jesus Christ, he's 45 and still saying dumb shit like that. You got to get the cocks and cunts out of your uh, system <laughs> <Yeah>. early. <laughs> so you don't yeah. have to keep going back to that well. Yeah, I, and I did, I did. I did. I got it all out of me. <laughs> so far. All right, we'll do one more. Uh, and this is a good one to end with, I think, because it sort of is almost like a summary of a lot of what we've talked about here. Uh, it's from 2007's Human the Death Dance, and the song is called Underground for Dummies. But I'm authentic. We get it. Started breaking rules 10 years later, still hadn't stopped. Won the biggest battle in a Metallica shirt before the album dropped. A week later, smashed a trophy at a show. Was taking up the space that I needed to grow. Grow, pop, grow. Drop, drop goes the easel, the easel. This is hip hop for the people, the people. Stop calling it emo. I know a kid who thinks he's hip hop because he buys. I know a kid who thinks he's hip hop because he never buys shit. Underground and mainstream, some are bound to change. So I imagine that at the time, it, it does sort of feel like a, hey, here's the mission statement. If you're just tuning in now, this is like, <laughs> this is everything that has happened in my career thus far. I would infer that you must have felt like you were sort of 
entering a new chapter or closing a chapter at that point. Yeah, I suppose so. I was it was definitely a you know a brief summary of my whole career for anyone first listening to a Sage Francis album, um, but also it was for the fans who had been with me from day one and they can all be like, Oh yeah. Oh, I get that. Oh, I get that reference. Oh yeah. Yeah. Remember that? I was fun to write. I always wanted to write a song called underground for dummies, but I, I was going to take it in a more literal uh, approach where I was literally going to break down what an underground artist needs to do in order to succeed. Um, which I think I ended up doing with an Epic Beardman song called DIY MFS. But for this for this track, I just found myself self-mythologizing. Yeah, mentioning all the mixtapes, all the seminal moments in my career, like winning Scribble Jam and what I ended up doing with that trophy, which is all, tr- everything is true that I say in the song. Like I got a, I did get a $1 advance to record personal journals. I did smash the trophy that I won at Scribble Jam a week after the after the battle at a Boston show just for shits and giggles. I thought it was funny. Now I, re- I regret it because I'm like, it would have been cool to keep that trophy. But it was, ta- yeah, like I say in the song, it was taking up space I needed to grow. And I didn't want people to think of me as a battle rapper. I just wanted to use battle rap as a way to get my name out there so people would search for my music. That's exactly what I did. It's kind of cool too because so much of music in the hip-hop canon is so self-referential. But in the indie space, that wasn't necessarily happening, or it's not as prevalent there. You know, like, you listen to you listen to somebody like a Jay-Z, and he... he it sort of seems like he has more uh, of, of a of a open access to talk about, like, I made hits every summer, you know? Like, I, yeah. I, I, I did this, and for whatever reason, maybe it's just, like... Not to say that indie rap isn't braggadocious, but it, was, it doesn't necessarily happen as much. So it is kind of cool to hear that, where you can kind of, you know, toot your own horn, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, because I, pr- I was proud of myself. I felt like it was something to be proud of. And again, like you said, a lot of indie rap isn't, doesn't feel like you're supposed to boast about shit, you know, outside of if you're, you're bragging about your style or, you know, I don't know. Um, but with people like Jay-Z where the things that his audience holds of value is, is, is status and is of wealth accumulation and the type of car you drive. But for us, it was like, man, we just kept plugging away uh, against all odds. Everyone continuously telling us this would never work. No one wants to hear you whine. Stop crying like a baby. This is emo rap. So that's what I mentioned in the chorus. Uh, I say, stop calling it emo. And I, I do a little wah. Because it's we did what they what was labeled as emo rap, but it wasn't wah emotional. <laughs> it wasn't wah crybaby rap. It was um, like we would address emotions and we would make music in an emotional, take an emotional approach, sometimes vulnerable, which is not often accepted in hip hop. So of course the hardos would would mock it and try to tear it down because it ended up being a threat to what they were doing and what their fan base um, held as valuable. And now look what happened all these years later. Now there's real, there's real wah emo rap <laughs> on the radio. It's not very artful. It's not, it's, it's, it's the very watered down version and it's very cringy, but uh, it does exist and it is out there. And they are, I guess the true emo rappers that, Everyone was so scared of uh, us turning into, but we stuck true to our craft. <laughs> I would say we we never took the easy easy way out. 
And the chorus, again, the chorus uh, was a reference to the third bass song, uh, Pop Goes the Weasel, who I think around that time I was having issues, not personal issues, but MC Search, who was doing the White Rapper show, on a reality TV show on MTV. Oh, yeah. And it just was so corny to me. And it was frustrating to watch like how they presented what right, white rap was to the world through their huge platform. And I, I remember I wrote this long diatribe about how I thought it was whack. And that kind of, I think that's why I kind of do a riff on the third bass chorus for my own chorus in that song. But it's tough to remember now. I can't even really remember. I did, I did want to just mention the emo and wah. That's because it was, it was annoying, but it was funny at the same time. Well, Man, listen, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I appreciate you opening up and being down to sort of revisit a bunch of uh, moments in your career. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's really nice to know that people give a shit. (laughs) They do. I promise they do. Thanks again to Sage Francis for appearing on the show. You can stay up to date on all things Sage by visiting strangefamousrecords.com. Make sure you subscribe to Can Knock the Shuffle and leave a review. That support really helps the show and ensures that more people will discover it, and that's a good thing. I'm on social media at Sean Dammit, and you can always write me at can'tknocktheshuffle at gmail.com. Can't Knock the Shuffle is proudly a part of the Stony Island Audio Network, home to other great hip-hop podcasts like What It Happened Was, Super Duty Tough Work, Dad Bod Rap Pod, Fatherhoods, and Self Core, so be sure you check all of those out. And if you're like me and have an insatiable need to consume all hip-hop-related media, check out my other show, The Questions Hip-Hop Trivia, by visiting questionshiphop.com. See you next time. Peace. Thank you.